things be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we come this morning once again to the second chapter of 1 Timothy, which has caused the church great disharmony, great aggravation, great division, and contains many things that are hard for us to hear. And yet we confess that this is your word, and it is the word of your son to us through Paul. And so we ask that you would give us hearts to receive your word with joy that we would not be overwhelmed with our questions and difficulties, but rather we would walk away refreshed and rejoicing in your Son. For he indeed, as we have confessed earlier, is the scope and whole of all pleasures, and he is seated at your right hand. So give us love and joy in him we pray this day, and guide us in our study, for we ask it and pray it in his most holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. First Timothy chapter two is one of the most heavily and passionately debated chapters in the New Testament. In the first part of the chapter, what I just read, uh, Paul seems to say on the surface that God wants everyone to be saved. And yet in many other places like Ephesians one and Romans nine, Paul seems to say that God has never intended that all be saved that God has already chosen who he will save. Jesus himself in John 17 says, just as he goes to the cross, I'm not praying for everyone. That He's only praying for those who the Father has given to him. Jesus also tells people repeatedly during his earthly ministry that they cannot come to him or hear him because they are not of his flock. He speaks repeatedly of those who are given to him by the Father. In fact, all Bible-believing Christians admit that at some level, God does not will ultimately for everyone to be saved. He has not decreed it. We know that God has prepared a place called hell and that if he wanted everyone saved, he could do it. We have to face the fact that Satan was made by God. God did not make him evil, but he did make him And more importantly, God allowed him to come to earth and allowed him to tempt our first parents. So what is Paul about here when he speaks of God's love for all men or when he says that God longs for all to be saved? The second part of chapter 2 is equally difficult, especially today. More and more churches are ordaining women to ministry In order to get around chapters like this, they argue that the Bible was written a long time ago and that Paul was only speaking to a particular situation going on in Ephesus. 
But those same arguments can be used to undermine every letter written by Paul, since all of them are also written into particular situations long ago. So we have a difficult chapter ahead of us, but let's not leave it there. This is God's eternal, timeless, and inerrant word. The trouble is not with the chapter. The trouble is in me and in you. We need this chapter precisely because it pushes our buttons. We need to hear hard things because isn't it true that the hard things are often the most necessary things? So please join me this week and next week and the following week as we carefully study these difficult verses together. Because of the difficulty of this chapter, I've decided to re-preach chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 to you this morning before going on to verses 8 through 15. About nine months ago, ten months ago now, I preached two sermons on these seven verses, and they're available online if you'd like to hear them again. And if you uh, walk, a today, walk away today with even more questions, as always, as always, both pastors, all of our elders, and our deacons would love to talk to you about any questions you might have and, and just walk through these passages with you. We'd love and feel honored to get to do that with you. But back to our text today. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to aid the faithful elders there. False teaching, as Paul predicted, has emerged from the elders in Ephesus. Despite Paul's amazing three-year ministry in that city, there are many who are already falling away from the truth. Chapter 2 is Paul telling Timothy now how to get a hold of the worship of the church. The public worship has been corrupted, and Paul wants this public worship corrected first of all. In these first seven verses, Paul especially wants the prayers of the church to return to their original pattern. So today, two questions that we're going to ask and answer. First, what is going on here in these seven verses? And second of all, what is, what is it exactly that Paul is calling the church to do? So what is going on in these verses? And then what exactly is Paul calling the church to do about that? So let's begin by trying to understand through the Bible what is happening in these first seven verses. Now, to make sense of these first seven verses, I need to tell you a little of the story of the Old Testament and a little about what the Bible tells us about this church in Ephesus. For centuries, and you need to understand this, for centuries, believing Jews had died, sometimes brutally, in order to maintain their Jewish identity. The Greeks had tried to break them. They outlawed circumcision. They built coliseums in their towns and tried to force the Jews to become Gentiles, to become Greeks. The great powers of the age, Greece and Rome, viewed Judaism as a backward faith whose time had come. At some times, at some points, the persecution was overwhelming, even more horrific than I can mention from the pulpit. It is one of the great mysteries of history, though not a mystery to our God, how the Jews survived those centuries of brutality. Hanukkah is the yearly celebration of that unlikely survival. In these centuries leading up to the time of Jesus, 
the Jews learned to separate themselves from the Gentiles in order to preserve their faith. Tax collectors and prostitutes, people who embraced Gentile subjugation, were cast out of the synagogue and excommunicated not just as sinners, but as traitors to their own people. Meanwhile, righteous Jews were constantly scandalized by their own rulers, men we meet in the Bible called Herod, who were often half Gentile by blood and all Gentile at heart. Men like Peter and Paul grew up under these conditions. Everywhere they went, there were reminders that their country was being subjugated, not just militarily, but culturally, religiously. Rome, I think much like our own culture, didn't just want their money, it wanted their lives, their hearts, their minds, and their children. And so when men like Peter and Paul thought, when they thought about the coming of the Messiah, they imagined a day when the nations would finally be punished. Israel would be set up as a pure and holy nation and where traitors, people like Matthew the tax collector, would be judged because they did not look with faith to the arrival of the Messiah. And this is why, this is why the disciples, to a man, abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion. This is why Peter took up a sword. This is why the book of Acts begins with the disciples asking the newly resurrected Christ, quote, Will you now set up the kingdom of Israel? End quote. This is why Peter, even after Pentecost, had to be rebuked because Paul, Paul rebukes him because he had separated from Gentile Christians no longer eating with them. Maybe I can put it this way, and I found this helpful. When the Jews of Jesus' day, when the Jews of Jesus' day, men like Peter and Paul, thought about the coming of Messiah, they thought about his coming much as you think today about Christ's second coming. What do I mean? When you think of Jesus' return, you think of his coming, right, in final judgment on his enemies, gathering his people into glory. You think of a day of vindication, right, where instantly all of God's enemies will be overcome with fear and everything will be put right. And by the way, you're right to think that way. The New Testament says again and again that Jesus' second coming will be just like that. And the book of Hebrews is a book dedicated actually to the idea that Christ's second return will be final judgment, so we better listen well now in the final age of human history. So that is the right way to think about Christ's second coming. But that's also how most first century Jews thought about Jesus' first coming in their own day. So when Jesus came, he came, and he loved, and he ate with excommunicated Jews, men like Matthew and Zacchaeus and his friends, when he came not to destroy, but to seek and to save the lost, when Jesus did all these things, people were bewildered. The Messiah had come, the kingdom had come, the miracles proved it, but instead of push, punishing the nations, and killing God's enemies, the Messiah had come to save the nations and to die on a Roman cross. This was unimaginable at the time. 
This is why, despite Jesus' clear predictions, not one of his disciples could understand or accept the crucifixion. This is why in Acts, Paul, we see Paul going into synagogues of Jews and he'll preach Jesus as the Messiah and they'll sit and they'll listen respectfully. But we're told in those texts that the very moment Paul began to mention the mission to the Gentiles, the people would call for his immediate death. I'm starting this way because I want you to understand something that I think can open up the New Testament to you both in public preaching and in your private study. The greatest struggle of the early church, the most explosive debate of the early church was this. Is the message of the Messiah really for the nations? And if so, how is it that Jews and Gentiles belong together in Messiah Joshua's church? Or to put it another way, How Jewish must a Gentile become in order to become a Christian? Or to put it one last way, who is justified now that the Messiah has come? And how are they justified? This was, if you read Acts and the Epistles, the question that prompted the church's very first general council or synod found in Acts 15 and called by us the Jerusalem Council. But this massive scandal, this massive theological debate animates so many of the famous portions of our New Testament. I can't possibly do full justice to this in our time this morning, but just two quick examples. First of all, we can hardly today imagine, we can hardly imagine the full weight of Jesus' words when he told the bewildered Nicodemus, quote, God so loved the Goyim, the nations, that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever, that was the shocking word, whosoever believes on him might have the kingdom, that is, eternal life with God. This was not a statement about Calvinism or Arminianism. That is to entirely miss the point. The shock that overcame Nicodemus in John 3 was this, that the Messiah had come for the nations, not to destroy them, but to save them and insert a gasp that the Messiah was offering them eternal life with God. These same shocking words entered Paul as well. We so rarely appreciate fully the words of Paul in chapter 1 of this book, this letter, As he writes in verse 15, he says, Joshua, Yeshua, the Messiah, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Remember that in Judaism, sinner was not a generic word for what we all do. Today, we would all raise our hands and say, I'm a sinner. But in Rabbi Paul's world, A sinner was someone living in open defiance to God's word. Sinners for Paul, sinners were Jewish girls who became prostitutes to the Roman occupying soldiers to make money. Sinners were Jews who became extorters of Rome, known as tax collectors. Paul's greatest shock came when he realized that he too was a sinner himself that the very people he had looked down upon, 
his entire career, were in fact the people Messiah had come to save and thank God for that because he was chief among them. Now back to Ephesus. Remember in chapter 1, as we saw last week, these false elders were teaching Jewish myths and genealogies, and they wanted to be called rabbi. So it's not surprising at all that the church in Ephesus has become increasingly exclusive. In fact, the threat was so great that look at verse 7, Paul feels the need to swear as he writes these first seven verses. He says, I am telling the truth, verse 7, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I was appointed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Why would Paul, who had done miracles for three years in this church, need to make an oath like that? Who could possibly think that Paul was a liar? Verse 7 is so helpful, so helpful in keying us into what is really happening here. Paul says this because the whole idea of ministry to the Gentile world was so controversial, so problematic. This is why the Galatian church was already turning back, if you recall, the Galatian church already turning back to the laws of Judaism. This is why in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds them that Jesus has, quote, broken down the wall of separation. And he writes, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those weren't random points. They were profound statements about what the Messiah had done and was doing in the world. Of course, all of this wasn't just distant theology for Timothy. It was also for Timothy deeply personal. Remember, Timothy was young and he was half Gentile. Most Christians at this point were Jews. Most of his congregation on Sunday morning, so to speak, they were Jewish or at least Jewish proselytes, people deeply embedded in Jewish life. They may have found it difficult to listen to a young half-Gentile on Sunday morning. With this in mind, Paul had taken Timothy in the book of Acts chapter 16 early in his ministry, and he circumcised Timothy in a vain attempt to make Timothy's ministry easier. easier. But even this could not remove the reality of conflict. Timothy himself embodied the greatest conflict of the early church. How could Jew and Gentile exist together in Messiah's new community? And behind that question, the even bigger question, who is justified before God? Now, if I've lost you all at all, feel free to grab me afterwards and let's talk together. But I did this because I really believe that if you can get this under your belt, the whole passage now falls into place so easily. You can stop, you should stop, reading this as a proof text for current theological debates and hear it instead as it was intended. This is not a theologically precise statement about Arminianism or free will. Paul did not sit down one day and say, now I'll show all those Calvinists. Not at all. In fact, the Greek phrase used here, all men, is used by Paul all through the scriptures, not to refer to every single man who ever lived, but rather to speak of all men, all kinds of men. The meaning here then is clearly the mission 
to the world. The sense of the term all men is all nations, all mankind, all kinds of people. Verse 2 confirms this reading because you see what Paul's concerned about. They are to resume praying for kings and for all in authority. This church, this particular church, and this can happen today, was collapsing in on itself. It had lost its outward focus, its love for the lost nations of the world. This ugly theology had taken such a hold that Paul felt it needful to say, I am not lying. He knows that some in the church have no desire or interest in praying for the nations. And that's what's going on here. That's what's at stake. The Messiah's victory, as you heard read from Isaiah earlier, earlier, The Messiah's victory is not to be limited to the people of Israel, but as Isaiah prophesied, the nations are to be called. So that is a little bit of what's going on here. And again, if you have more questions, two sermons up online about this, speak to me. I'd love to talk to you. I don't believe this is a proof text for Arminian theology or even really primarily for Calvinist theology. It's not about who God has elected. There are other passages about that but rather it's about the prayer that God wants in worship for all people. Now, what remedy does Paul explicitly now give to this problem? What does he want Timothy to do to cleanse this church of its tribalism? Well, look at verse 1. First of all, or of first importance then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul's first remedy for Timothy is to restore, restore the pattern of prayer that Paul had established when he founded the church. Restore the pattern of prayer Paul had established when he founded the church. He's to start with the prayer of the people. As verse 8 and following makes clear, we're talking here about public prayers, prayer in the context of worship, Not to say these things wouldn't influence private prayer, but the Bible and I think all godly commentators agree that we're talking here about the worship of God's people together. Now, isn't it striking, brothers and sisters, isn't it striking that Paul's first remedy, the first remedy he gives in this letter is about public prayer? I wonder how many of us have really ever thought about this as a core part of what church is about. Being an American, which I am, when I think of solving a problem in the church, my first thought is action. Let's form a committee. Let's create a new ministry. Let's do something big and something we think will be immediately successful. We are a nation of entrepreneurs, which is great. But because of that, our first instinct is always to do. And if we are honest, we often like to act big, to act big, and then pray later if things don't work out. So it's remarkable, isn't it remarkable, that as Paul goes now into chapter 2 to remediate, to heal this church, he starts with their prayer times. He seeks to order out their public prayers together. And this isn't just a one-time thing here in 1 Timothy. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, you'll quickly see, very quickly, that fasting and prayer precede all the great moments and movements of the early church. In fact, it was a session. 
or a season of intense prayer and fasting in which Paul was first called by the Holy Spirit to go to the Gentile world. But we can go back further than the book of Acts. In the synagogue, recall that much early Christian practice comes from the synagogue. In the synagogue, prayer, prayer was, and probably still is in many places, central to the life of the gathered people. Not just a prayer here or there for a meal or a good night's sleep, but extended times of prayer. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, talks about how in his day, around the time of Christ, the synagogues stopped praying for the Roman emperors because these emperors demanded worship and they were so idolatrous. And so the synagogues stopped praying for their leaders. Josephus writes his own thought that this played a role in the disastrous Jewish war where Rome and the Jews fought and the temple was ultimately destroyed as it is to this day. And Josephus wonders if we had kept praying for them, if we had kept praying for those in authority over us, would things have come to this? More importantly, prayer played a critical role in the ministry and discipleship of Jesus and John the Baptist, both men, taught their disciples how to pray. Jesus, our Lord, regularly relied on prayer to fulfill his mission. You will remember prayer was all Jesus wanted to do in the lead up to his crucifixion. I'm so pleased and thankful to tell you today that both our elders and deacons begin their meetings with extended periods of prayer. And we often remind each other that this is the foundation. We're not too busy for this. As elders, this often means staying a lot later into the evening, sometimes into the morning of the next day. We are admittedly tired, but we've decided together that thoroughly discussing the needs of our sheep and then having extended prayer is essential to our calling. The deacons have adopted this practice as well. It means later nights, but it also means better leadership. Paul makes it explicit. He says, verse 1, First of all, do this first of all. This is the first priority, Timothy. Restore the church's praying life. Restore the church's praying life. Notice also that Paul has a kind of prayer in mind, doesn't he? They were to pray regularly and thoroughly for all people. In verse 1, Paul piles up four words to characterize the ministry of prayer. He calls for supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. You may recognize three of those same words from a very familiar passage we probably all know, Philippians 4, 6. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All the major commentators and Greek scholars agree, both old and new, that we cannot today parse out for you, I can't parse out for you, exactly which each of those words means. What's the exact difference between an intercession and a supplication? We probably really can't get at that. There's a lot of overlap. But everyone also agrees that the specifics of these four words is just not the point. The little nuances between the words are only meant to drive home one point, that the church service, the life of the church, is to be full of prayer. 
This is why all four words are plural. So we are to do together supplications, plural, many. We are to do prayers, plural. We are to do intercessions, plural, many, and thanksgivings. The picture, however you work out the individual words, the picture is one of prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Lastly, Paul is urging that this be done for all people, especially those in authority. Now, Paul clearly can't mean here by all that we literally pray individually for everyone. Some people like to turn to this passage and say, all means all. But in this passage and throughout the Bible, this phrase in Greek doesn't literally always mean every single person by name. Rather, here it means the nations, the world, all peoples. The Ephesian church probably doesn't know about South America at this point, but they can pray for the nations and the leaders of the nations. The false elders who we met in 1 Timothy 1 have stopped this. And Paul, through Timothy now, is restoring it. The false elders, with their mystic form of Judaism, had put an end to these big missionary prayer times. Paul wants them restored, first of all. Prayer is tough on us, isn't it? There are times when it just flows naturally, but aren't there times when you really struggle? You may know it, uh, not know it. You may not know it. Some of you do. But people have, in the past, more than once, uh, criticized Pastor Trafskar and myself for praying too much in the services. It would be easy for me to just condemn those people as immature, but I think it's better for me to admit that I, too, struggle with prayer. John Calvin talked to his congregation about this a lot. You know, John Calvin's people, they didn't have smartphones. But you know what he said to them? He said, and this is my paraphrase, he writes, I know you're really distracted. In fact, anything will distract us. And the Holy Spirit knows this. And that, that is why Paul is so emphatic here, so thorough in his call to prayer. The great pastor John Stott whose work on 1 Timothy is treasured to this day, he gave a very convicting antidote that, or anecdote that I want to share with you. It's also an antidote. He wrote this. Some years ago, he says, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on a holiday, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was fine. We should pray for the sick, but that was all. The intercession can have hardly lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. What we're facing is not new. It is hard to pray, and it's especially hard to get beyond our everyday needs, which we should pray about. But it's hard to move beyond to the work of missions, to the global picture, to pray for our neighbors, our nation, and our leaders. We have so much to pray about just within our own congregation that it seems impossible to imagine fully obeying Paul's teaching in these verses. I think Calvin gets at the heart of the matter when he writes that in prayer, it's in prayer that faith 
proves itself. You see, our problem with prayer is not screen time. It's faith and our lack of it. The reality is that we each of us have unspoken doubts about the effectiveness of prayer. It always seems that pure action to us is better. For one reason or another, our prayers seem landlocked, limited to the most immediate needs and to our own inner circle. As with everything else, we need Jesus, his forgiveness, his help, his message. Jesus cared deeply about prayer. His prayers in Gethsemane prove this. But his anger at the temple also proves it. As you probably know, unlike almost every other great leader in history, Jesus never practiced real violence in his ministry. Well, almost never. You see, Roman money, Roman money had the image of the emperor on it. And quite often it had an inscription that read, Augustus, son of God. In a failed attempt to be pure, the Jews would not allow this money to be given at the temple. So you needed money changers. You needed tables set up around the temple to exchange your idolatrous Gentile profane money into clean temple currency. Those tables were set up in what is called the court of the Gentiles. In other words, the Jewish authorities filled the section of the temple, the only section of the temple designated for Gentiles, they filled it with animals and commerce. It so enraged our Savior that he did something he never did. He became a little violent. He overturned the tables. And as he did so, do you remember what he said? He quoted the prophet Isaiah. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Immediately after saying this, Isaiah then went on to write these words. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So then, brothers and sisters, may the Lord multiply our prayers in this place. May the Lord expand our prayers to include our leaders, our nation, and the world. And may the Lord make this a place of holy prayer for all people. Let us individually begin, or maybe resume, praying for the lost around us and for the world itself. If you found yourself recently only praying for your food, your next job, or a good night's sleep, and it's been a long time since you prayed for the work of missions, for the persecuted church, for the poor, for the refugee. Maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed for one of our missionaries or for our president or our vice president. May this text strengthen you and us together to pray, to destroy the insular Jewish mysticism of the false teachers, Paul says, start with global prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, in obedience to your word this morning, we come to you with our prayers for the whole world, praying that the work of the gospel would go forth in every place, that in every place you would raise up believers. How we look with joy 
to the many nations of the world, to Africa, to South America, to Asia, where everywhere Christian churches are blossoming and thriving and thousands are coming to Christ. How we rejoice in this and pray more and more for all the peoples of the world that they would hear the gospel of Christ and respond. And for this culture, for this nation that has so long resisted your word, we pray your mercy and grace. We pray for our leaders and for those who are in authority in the United States, for President Biden, for Vice President Harris, for our governor, and for all those in authority, that you would give wisdom and skill to them, that we might live in peace so that we might pursue godliness and share the gospel openly. Work in all these ways, Father, we pray, so that Christ, who is worthy of glory, might receive more glory with every passing moment. We pray it for his sake and in his name. Amen.